Hey Kyle, Ben speaking. I'm en route to the southeast coastline of the South Island of New Zealand, going surfing for a few days. I had the choice of uh, either going hunting red deer during the roar, which it is down here, going for a surf for a few days and uh, chose the latter because um, after the events in Christchurch recently I felt quite uncomfortable picking up my rifle and donning camo gear so uh, screw it I thought I'll go surfing instead. Forecast is looking good so um, looks like it's all gonna pay off. Eww. Thanks for the company. Thank you for sending that in, Ben. I've yet to travel to New Zealand, but it is on top of my list. I have a list that I keep pinned up next to my bed of all the countries that I still want to visit. And New Zealand is at the top. Right below that is Morocco, Mozambique, Japan. It's a big world out there, people. Travel as much as you can. And Ben, I I hear you on the... uh, um, uneasiness of holding a firearm. Uh, I thought that was very honest, and I've felt that too um, as I've become more and more obsessed with hunting. I primarily use a bow when I hunt, but uh, this winter I went on a few rifle hunts. And uh, not growing up around firearms, when I when I hold one, there's a certain... Um, I don't know, just queasiness or heightened sense of awareness, just holding something that has so much power. Um, It's a similar feeling to um, looking over the top of the edge of a cliff, looking over the edge, and and you feel that, whoa, you know, like your body's just, the awareness is there that, that something can go really wrong really quickly if you aren't careful. Anyway, I feel that when I... Uh, hold firearms so regardless uh i hope that you went out and got some uh some waves if any of you want to send me a voice memo you can click the voice memos app on your phone record 30 seconds to a minute of audio let me know who you are where you're listening from some details about your environment and you can email it to info at kyle.surf Everyone, it has been a little while since my last podcast. I have been on the road. I went out to the University of Rhode Island and gave a speech. Shout out to some of the podcast listeners that came, uh, specifically Adam. Um, I met a a really cool cinematographer uh, who was from New York, and he drove in. We went out and had a few beers after. I say it a lot, but the people who listen to this podcast are really cool and I like doing these live events because it gets you guys together um, that's really the point you know we have a little community here and it's nice when everyone can meet up in person so I am going to be doing more uh, college speeches if you are listening in from a university you can shoot an email to info at kyle.surf and maybe we can work something out This episode of the podcast is with Dr. Kelly Brogan and her partner, Sayer G. Uh, They'd never done an interview together, um, and they both work in the health space. So I thought it was kind of fun. I love doing these three-way podcasts. They're so 
easy and free-flowing. Dr. Kelly Brogan is a holistic women's health psychiatrist and author of the New York Times bestselling book, A Mind of Your Own. She completed her psychiatric training and fellowship at NYU Medical School, NYU Medical Center, excuse me, after graduating from Cornell University Medical College and has a Bachelor's of Science from MIT in Systems Neuroscience. And Sayer G is the founder of GreenMediaInfo.com, the world's most widely referenced evidence-based natural medical resource, and he is the co-author of The Cancer Killer. Here's the thing about a conversation like this. I'm not a doctor, so I can't debate any points that are brought up about vaccines or antipsychotics. All I can do is direct the conversation into spaces that I think will be interesting and allow my guests to expand on the points that they want to make. That said, I would love to get a psychiatrist on this podcast who thinks that antipsychotics and antidepressants are the bee's knees. I want to get you all a wide range of opinions, so please uh, email info at kyle.surf if you know of a good guest. Here is what I will say about our mental health care system. It's badly broken. And the fact that conventional doctors are taught almost nothing about nutrition um, and the impact that that has on our mental health seems crazy to me. I think it also is very strange that America is one of only three countries that allows direct-to-consumer advertising for antidepressants and antipsychotics, and that a drug that can dramatically impact your mind can be sold to you with catchy music in the background and a family playing catch with their dog out in some field, and the product that's being sold to you uh, has side effects that could make you kill yourself. Final point, if you want to call someone a conspiracy theorist, you can, but just acknowledge that that didn't take any effort on your part. There's no intellectual engagement or, or intellectual rigor that you had to go through to make a better point. So I'll leave it there. And... I want to talk about some nutritious products for a moment. Shout out to Mudwater, the company that sponsors each and every one of these podcasts. Mudwater is a chai mushroom blend. It's got cacao, reishi, lion's mane, turmeric. I recently stopped drinking coffee for uh, about a week, took a hiatus, and this is what I did. I put a spoonful of Mudwater into a blender. Then I put a spoonful of Santa Cruz Medicinal CBD coconut in. Extra cinnamon a scoop of collagen, which is good for joint health, and then a small chunk of dark chocolate. Whew. Threw some hot water in that bad boy. Hit blend. I didn't even notice not drinking coffee for a week. It was amazing. It tasted so good. So you can go to mudwtr.com to check them out. Chai mushroom blend that I drink pretty much every day. Uh, also, shout out to Santa Cruz Medicinals. You guys are amazing. I gave some uh, Santa Cruz Medicinals pain cream to my mom recently, and she loved it. She said that it helped her with uh, inflammation. It's a really, um, a really wonderful product. It's non-psychoactive. CBD is non-psychoactive. And uh, 
it has a, a myriad of benefits. Um, and the coconut oil is great for uh, massages. It's, it's good for, you can put it in your smoothie and cook with it. They make olive oil that I put in my salads. It's just, it's, it's great that such a, uh, a, a healthy product can also be used um, in cooking. It's just great. I love it. All right, guys, I've been talking for way too long. I'm going to go uh, eat some dinner, go to bed. Got a bunch more podcasts coming up for you after this one. But for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Kelly Brogan and Sayer G. Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. In in Hawaiian, uh, ancient Hawaiian, for example, they have over a hundred words to describe waves and ocean conditions. There's a huge amount of nuance. It's not just not just that's a wave or that's is the this is the ocean. They've had to learn all of these words to describe that kind of nuance. And similarly, I think that one of the reasons that we love comedians is that they can des- describe as you talk about this felt wrongness in a way that many of us can't articulate. And I wanted to get your perspective on the power of of words that can help people feel more deeply what it is that they are feeling. And the power of um, increasing our vocabulary to be able to describe what we're feeling and how that can shift our mental state. Yeah, I mean, I can... I can speak to that because one of the first things I say to my patients is that we're not going to use the words depression or anxiety in this room. And part of the reason for that is because not only are they highly nonspecific uh, descriptors that could really be representative of a myriad of subjective states, but also because the words carry all of the charge of the label of the pathology, which implies brokenness, implies, you know, being damaged, implies being chronically, you know, in need of chemical balancing, et cetera. So, you know, we talk a lot about the ways in which the medical system can use words and specifically diagnostic labels as a form of sorcery. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I love that connection because it's, you know, what you could call ontological reification. You take symptoms and then you lock people in through the sorcery of Latin and Greek terminology into thinking the symptom that's presenting itself is some, you know, something that is, is, you know, unchanging and has its own separate reality. Um, and that's often the justification for treating it through conventional means if it's like a lesion that comes up through mammography, you know, they may decide, oh, this is precancerous and, and then preemptively, uh, you know, use chemo, radiation, surgery. But the concept of, um, I mean, this is obviously different from what you were asking, but language is so powerful mm-hmm. that w- the way we experience it often is a, a way of uh, controlling and misdirecting people from, you know, healing. Hexing. That, and hexing. That's, yeah. Nocebo effect is sometimes used, that term. 
right? Yeah, hexing is is a strange one. Like we, you, I've heard you talk about this in past interviews. Like I stole it from him. Did you? <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you guys steal a lot of stuff from each other. This is why this is why I'm excited to have you both on because there's there's. I mean, it's so obvious that a lot of the work that you are doing, like a lot of your first drafts, the figuring out, um, you do together, right? Where yeah. you, like, does this, how does this sound? Like, how, how are people going to take this? It's, yeah. and I, I am projecting here, but I would imagine your relationship is a constant process of like pulling each other back from a ledge and then like showing when to jump off the ledge yes. at the right yeah. time, like oh. making sure the tide is high enough to jump off the ledge. Yeah, no, that's a good surfer analogy. Yeah. I'm full of them. My life is like one huge <laughs> metaphor. Well, we have a very complex, nuanced relationship in the sense that like we both have edited for each other, which is such a unique thing to, to be activists, for example, wanting to articulate something responsibly and have someone else who can see you and help validate, direct it in such a way that it's not just you doing your own thing. And um, I think generally speaking, that's really it's always felt like a form of love and being held for us which, you know, many couples don't have that experience. So. That's why if we disagree, even about oh. the slightest, <laughs> you know, refining element of a concept, it's really challenging. Oh, yeah. Yeah, in Santa Cruz <laughs> several years ago, we almost broke up over conversations about uh, fatty acid oxidation and, <laughs> yeah. and fish oil. And it was real. It got real. Like, we're, yeah. you know, so that's part of our, like, masculine sides, like, you know, right or wrong. It's not about healing or it's not about being vulnerable. And that's one element of our relationship. Yeah. I can completely relate. It's the <laughs> political discussions that I have with my girlfriend that have gotten me the closest <laughs> to sleeping on the couch. <laughs> but it's, you, you sometimes need, I, I find at least for me, I, it's like there needs to be a certain, um, foundation set for, for even the conversation to be able to occur. Like before, you get into the nuts and bolts of, of something that could be contentious to know that the intention of, of each other is to sharpen each other's ideas or to come to some more shared understanding. Right. But I think that without setting up that intention before you getting mm -hmm. without the context, getting into the content can um, very easily make it feel like there's no goodwill attached to the feedback. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I was just gonna say that we, sh we share fundamentally like a, a religion you know because that's a lot of what I've come to and I think we both have witnessed is that so much of the orientation around these different activist related topics is a matter of where you're putting your faith and to think of faith in science as something different you know is an error and that's why people in our you know communities call and refer to that level of faith in science as scientism Right. And I was certainly guilty of that before my awakening process, just putting all of my blind faith in science as a deterministic vehicle for arrival at a destination rather than a process of refining the ever evolving truth. You right. know? So we, we share a lot of the same, if not all of mm -hmm. the same uh, tenets of, you know, faith and orientation towards the questions of life, you know. And that helps with these discussions. Right. So if you come across a new piece of research that you know is going to be highly controversial to put out, is there a set of questions you will ask each other or, or ask yourselves bef before putting that out? Mm. 
because you're in this unique space where you, you still hold a, a level of credibility because of your medical background that um, allows a lot of people to pay attention to you in a, in a way that they may not to others. So um, holding that credibility with a lot of respect, I would imagine is a, a huge, huge responsibility. responsibility for you. Yeah, and I, and I feel like you know, arguably needed to grow into, and I'm still growing into that responsibility because I think early in my activism career and when we sort of crossed paths, I, I had just sort of shifted the fear into another camp, you know, it was still as scary a world, right? It was, you know, the fluoride and the GMOs and, you know, pharma and toxicants everywhere. And, um, you know, we're birthing wrong and we're dying wrong and everything is the sky's falling. And, um, it took a while for me to recognize that that mindset does not engender a healing state of regeneration. And so anytime I think we encounter new evidence, um, that is disruptive, that's probably the first question we ask is, is this going to contribute to a state of fear-based living or does it support empowerment, uh, curiosity, and ultimately a solution that is already in the hands of someone who might receive the information? Yeah, I mean, uh, just a real concrete example for the listeners because I think they should know is that in the aerospace industry, you know, most of all the planes that carry millions around the world daily, they've designed them and known about this design actually since like the 60s to take air from the engine, uh, which literally has all of these toxicants, some of which are highly neurotoxic, puts it into the cabin for the crew, passengers, you know. And so when you know that and you communicate that to the world, like there's an awareness that, holy shit, now when you're in a plane, you're getting chemo, literally, and there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, you could wear some flimsy, flimsy mask, take supplements like we do, but, you know, so there's certain things that we know, and now probably know better than ever that you almost don't want to share because the nocebic effect of amplifying the harm of knowing is actually sometimes probably greater than, you know, it, yeah. Well, so. and people hate you for it. They do. They, they hate you if you don't provide a path forward. Woo. I know. Those are like going into a party and dropping one of those bombs and leaving to not get <laughs> yeah. you invited back. Well, and and the, the <laughs> thing about me is that I've always been on the the super dark side of that equation, if it's like radioisotopes from like nuclear reactors to fracking to all these elements, I always tend to go to the deepest, darkest part of that equation. And I think Kelly has actually helped me to a degree realize that in, in part, I have my own childhood wounds, right? And, and activism for a lot of the people in our space is we're acting out of that shadow material. And, you know, ultimately, although it can feel like some heroic journey it's really doing a disservice to what's fundamentally at the root of it we were afraid you know or we, we we don't even know how to take care of ourselves and so so a lot of that i think helped us get to a point where we now prioritize like peace within ourselves and our relationship in a way and yet our relationship is is very intense at times and and you know with this woman specifically she doesn't um you know she expects nothing but the best. So it's, it's, it's not like a walk in the park. Right. <laughs> high standards. High yeah. Standards. Yeah. Um, I, I have lived in this world for a long time and have tried to navigate my way through it as best I can. Um, 
and it's it's been a strange experience for me because when I was a, um, you know in high school, my parents uh, exposed me to a lot of this counterculture thinking and pe- people like Noam Chomsky and um, and and uh, the rest who who highlight the the military industrial complex you know the impact that america has had on other countries and when i would start to travel on these on these surf trips my mom would give me books about you know the coup that america had implemented 30 years prior (laughs) so it it, uh it was really helpful in developing my own critical thinking Mm -hmm. i'm really grateful for that but as i started to go down those roads as i'm sure you have you find yourself in these these swamps where people are so they kind of get off on the problem Mm. without moving through it Mm. in a way. And then it's, and then you you get a lot of people who take everything hook, line and sinker and are like voting's bullshit. This is bullshit. That was, and they're not just engaged in their community in a healthy way. You know, and like a lot of the, people that I love interviewing most are the ones that, you know, they're not necessarily global thinkers, but they're very engaged in solving a problem within their community. It's almost like they're the the fascia of the body that is so easily eroded. Um, and I've done a lot of, of thinking about, you know, when is it okay to to talk about this kind of stuff? And when I came to the, the uh, idea of the Motherfucker Awards, it largely came from the realization that if you're not funny, it's the, I'm going to miss it should be the quote, but it's, it's the quote that you better make them laugh. Otherwise they'll kill you. Mm-hmm. And I think it's similarly, you better show them a way forward. Otherwise they'll kill you. Mm-hmm. There's a book that I, I really like called switch. Have you guys ever heard of this mm-hmm. by Dan and chip Heath? And they, they talk about this concept of, of, um, motivating the elephant that's the emotional side of an argument and then um uh redirecting the rider and that's the nuts and bolts of what you can do in response to this problem and without one or the other um the movement doesn't go anywhere yeah i think we've encountered it's kind of a a fetishizing around activism that can happen that that sustains and perpetuates the exact problem that the activists purport to want to resolve. And a lot of that has to do with, um, you know, we were just talking about that Nietzsche quote about the, you know, the potential to become the monster that you're fighting. And it has to do, I think, a lot with this mindset we're so enculturated in, which is just warring against everything. You know, we, we love that. We feel comfortable because we feel in some degree of control. We know who the bad guy is, we're the good guy. And, you know, you could find prismatic manifestations of the good and bad guys on every side of the camp. And I think it was a couple of years ago that we started to undergo a shift from that kind of activism where we, we were, you know, swords aloft here to take down the enemy. Um, just seeing that so many of our colleagues were in deep suffering, like really living pretty miserable lives. And also seeing that the movement gave us, us like on the front lines, like a feeling of real hopelessness. Um, And so to shift into a focus on solutions on what's possible, you know, that's when I stopped writing so many anti-pharma blogs and started really showcasing these recovery stories that defied the dogma of the establishment and 
themselves disrupted, um, you know, any ability the conventional paradigm had to live without being questioned, you know. And so I think that that's, um, if, if you can't get in touch with that, like the desire to inspire, then you really can, it's sort of a dark fetishized place that you'll just live in forever and and no people don't want to be a part of that right for good reason yeah i mean speaking personally there was a point when i found a lot of my identity in activism and being the person that knew about all these Mm -hmm. problems and i kind of got off in that vicey way of like let me tell you about what's happening here with no solution see ya (laughs) yeah my job but i but like the deep inner voice in me was you won't be looked at as interesting if you don't constantly talk about these problems. And so I found a form of my identity in being the environmentalist that knew about all this stuff with, with very little um, emphasis being put on where these chinks in the armor are uh, and where people can get involved to shift the system. And how you've participated, you yourself, in creating the conditions for that to emerge. You know, this idea of personal responsibility or radical responsibility really comes down to the individuals who want change as much as to the individuals who are perpetuating, seemingly. The problem, we've all created this. And, you know, if you can think from the perspective, it's a bit of Alan Watts kind of mentality but if you can think from the perspective that we're just playing different characters it diffuses you know the finger pointing um and really creates the onus to focus on where where and how can we reconnect i was just going to say and there's like an always an implicit ontology in any construct if it's us and them then obviously in the in the way that we as activists have brought attention to the problems out there and amplified that, um, the implication is that we didn't co-create it or we didn't create it, right? There's like this ultimate spiritual layer where fundamentally you accept everything you experience you've somehow created or the universe has conspired to make those events occur. And it doesn't seem scientific or logical, but you have those moments where you sort of acknowledge it. And that's where I think we're moving, because if you take radical responsibility for your experience, including all of the shit we're talking about, that means the implication is that we can also uncreate it or we could alter it. So there is something about that almost new agey way of looking at things that is deeply empowering. Um, but it's not simple. It's a paradox. It's both and neither. And, you know, it's, it's, it's complexity, because if I talk about it as if I understand it, then I'm participating in the very illusion so there's always a a big question mark too for humility right so how would you say that we have all been partly culpable for the um sickness that we see in our society specifically related to you know depression anxiety and this whole paradigm of thinking Hmm. because as a collective first i'll start with we have lost any relationship uh, to the concept of initiation to adulthood, I think, right? So that leaves us sort of like little kids running around in adult clothing. And little kids fundamentally feel necessarily helpless, you know, or less powerful than the adults in the room. And so I think that that is the core of, of why and how we 
outsource our agency. You know, we give our power away because we don't know how to hold it. We don't know how to own it. We don't even really know what it means to be powerful other than the ways in which we see power demonstrated on a societal level, which is control and force. It's not innate power. Power, you know, itself doesn't require coercion and compliance, you know, force compliance. So we don't have power modeled on the individual level. And so, you know, it feels better to get a diagnosis and be told, here's what you have to do. It feels validating of this sense of being victimized. We feel like something is wrong with us, right? We personalize it. And then when the doctor in the white coat tells us, yes, you're right, something is wrong with you. Here is the biological reason you've been struggling and suffering. And here's the chemical cure that provides a sense of relief and and validation. So we participate in looking for the quick fix, but it's also because no one, we don't have elders, no one is modeling for us how to do otherwise. So it's simultaneously on the individual level and the collective level that we're creating the conditions for, you know, our own, um, our own dependency on a system that really isn't built to serve us as individuals. Right. I've heard you talk about um, the potential for having an ailment and having curiosity be the first emotion that you um, go towards. And uh, I thought that that was, that was fairly profound because so often um, it's this fear trigger. You know, if someone tells you you have cancer, you become afraid and yeah. you look for the fix for the expert to tell you what to do, which... Um, does remove a certain amount of your agency and a certain amount of your self-knowing, whereas curiosity, I think, is is an emotion that can, in many cases, most quickly allow people to grow up because they're all of a sudden they're they're um, moving it into a world outside of themselves, and even if it's an internal problem, they have a sense of trust that they can move through it. I know I'm being slightly obscure here and we're yeah. talking about very meta stuff that I'm uh, flailing my way into. No, that's, that's absolutely how I would say it. I mean, but, you're parenting yourself. You're right. providing that sense of, no, everything's okay. Let's understand what's going on. And I think, you know, Sayer and I are somewhat unique in that. I think that is because of our, our you know, deep dive into the scientific literature, that's what we've come to is that there isn't a quick fix. Don't take the bait. So you're left really holding all of the responsibility, holding all of the power, and in a position not to abandon and potentially violate your own body. So if you stay with your body and you don't reflexively run away from it into the arms of a doctor who's going to tell you how to manage it and put it into submission, then Curiosity does make sense because it's almost an anthropological orientation towards yourself where you're saying, okay, something meaningful is going on here. How do I learn more about that? Yeah. One of Kelly's quotes I love is, uh, suffering ends where meaning begins. And so, you know, that's the bait, right? Is that we go to a doctor, we get a physical diagnosis for something which fundamentally is psycho-spiritual and, and or a felt experience of something being really wrong. It may have a physical component. You feel pain or discomfort, but beneath that is really 
a message, you know, and also an indication of how you might heal it. I do this uh, work called Amine, which is a type of like emotional trauma release. And it's been so profound for me, you know, even as a, a male trying to understand what masculinity is to be able to experience what I believe is similar to what a woman has experience of while giving birth. You know, that's a bold statement, trust <laughs> me, because a man pain and men aren't supposed to compare their experience to women's pain. But I, I, it's to the point where you're screaming and yet beneath all that is just so much, you know, healing and energy that you wouldn't know was behind a physical you know, complaint. So I don't know. I think men especially need help with this. And because of wise women like Kelly, we have frameworks to better understand the body in this light, which is uh, so much more empowering. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that when, when rites of passage were lost in our culture, we lost a lot. I would be really interested to know when that took a dive and when pharmaceutical based thinking or, or, or I, w- I would say um, this giving away of our own agency rose um, as a as a dude who who you know I I feel like I have learned more about myself from surfing big waves mm. than I have mm-hmm. from almost any other experience because you know you can fall on a on a 30 foot wave and even if there's a hundred people around if you get dragged you know real deep below the surface that is the most personal conversation that you are uh, going to yes. have all day long yeah. and all of a sudden those words that you tell yourself about yourself become very important and the language that yes. you use all of a sudden becomes heightened you know it's almost like a conversation on a podcast like you you bring a little bit more because you know other people are listening like if you're under water it raises the stakes in a way where all of a sudden that conversation in your mind becomes so much more important. Mm-hmm. And I think that any rite of passage forces that conversation to become so much more vivid and for you to ultimately be able to gain this this deeper relationship with yourself. Well, I would just say for men, you know, one rite of passage that we weren't aware of was like circumcision right at birth. And then you add in C-section, multiple vaccinations, no breastfeeding, and all the other factors that go on today. And we're so traumatized and so disassociated from what would be considered a healthy way to enter the world um, that, yeah, I think we're all looking for these sorts of rites of passages. Yeah, so. yeah. I circum- myself, circumcised myself <laughs> while surfing big, big waves. It's <laughs> oh, my the, God. The ultimate rite of passage. Yeah. Toughens you up. <laughs> Toughens me up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But what I would say for me is realizing recently that a lot of the adversity I experienced early on, it felt imp- imposed on me, right? Like when you're circumcised and you're just an infant, that, that's pretty fucked up. And that pain you associate with something really bad and you, you contract in. And from there on after, you know, pain is bad. And it's not what happens when you exert yourself or put yourself in the, the maw of a 60-foot wave and potentially could die. And that's the thing is men don't have the passages that women have built in. They don't have the lunar monthly cycle of men, menzies, they don't have childbirth. Um, so, you know, we have war, we have sports, we have, you know, other ways of going about it, but not in such a conscious way, at least in the Western modern model. Yeah, that's what I was going to add exactly is the element of choice is what differentiates uh, an initiatory experience from one of deep trauma, probably, right? Right. It's love making versus rape or fasting versus, you know, starving. Um, 
but I think that the the core connecting you know sort of thread is is this encounter with the brink you know like you're suggesting um but in indigenous populations you know ancestrally this was always um held by you know onlooking elders who assured you that you could do it but you still had to do it and choose to do it and that's a lot of what i never signed up for this but have come to work with in in my practice with women coming off of psychotropic meds uh, i always thought well i've learned that it was a poison apple i've learned that there are reasons not to take these meds long-term outcomes don't support continued prescribing so i'm going to start to help people come off uh, and i had no idea that i would uh, be setting up the conditions for this kind of initiation to you know, oneself and passage through the dark night of the soul. And after I started seeing it dozens and dozens of times, now I sort of catch the flavor of it. And it absolutely has to do with what you said, that that very, very high stakes internal conversation at the moment where it could go either way. Uh, and how are you going to show up to that moment? Because if you if you show up in a way that's affirming of your inbuilt you know, right to claim life, then you're free. There's nothing to be afraid of. And, you know, my work with my mentor, Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez, really helped to sort of cut the final chords for me um, around cancer, right? Because, you know, and Sayer can speak to this through his own research and work is, is arguably like you said, the, the scariest condemnation, like it brings people instantly to their mortality the moment they consider whether they're, you know, in that half of the population that's going to encounter this diagnosis. And working with him, he had 27 years of experience putting terminal cancers into remission through um, natural medicine and had a lot of knowledge and insight, you know, as to you, um, around the overpromising of available, you know, treatment strategies. You know, when I worked with him, I just felt like, well, if I don't have to be afraid of that, what do I have to be afraid of? You know, there's only opportunity here. Yeah. I find that I, I've always really enjoyed hanging out with ex-addicts mm -hmm. because there, it's, there's, I know it's a weird thing to say, <laughs> but like there's a kind of fire that many of them have had to move through mm -hmm. that brings about a kind of self-assuredness or calm and right? authenticity. Yeah. I mean, and it was really sad to see what happened to him, but one of my heroes growing up with, was Anthony Bourdain. Mm -hmm. And you could tell that there was, and he's an ex-heroin addict. Um, and the way that he would orient towards the situation, talk about, you know, a, a topic um, seemed just so much like he, he truly didn't give a fuck, which is such a rare quality to have. But it wasn't that kind of like bombastic, yeah, yeah. not giving a shit, but like just to be able to really say what you mean. Um, in a high stakes situation, I think many times comes from having done something that was more difficult early on in life. I mean, I've, I've heard you talk about this with, uh, in regards to Kundalini yoga. Yeah. And I wouldn't, I don't want to insert my agenda all the time, but, but you're absolutely right about addicts and what is happening is, is in the conventional paradigm, they go through this fire and then nearly immediately they're medicated psychiatrically. So it's not 
often spoken about, but it's like almost a revolving door from illicit substances or alcohol directly to antidepressants, you know, sleep meds and benzodiazepines. And so their their rite of passage is co-opted. And the, the yield of that is you know, controlled, diminished, and, uh, you know, in other ways, um, regulated by the medical system. It's something that's problematic, you know, to say the least, but yeah. And then many of them find, find their way to Kundalini probably for reasons of recognizing, um, that there is a sense of liberation on the other side of this elective engagement with brink practices. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I think that well, I just had something so smart to say, you guys. You have no <laughs> idea. Um, yeah, I I agree that it does rob people of that kind of growth as soon as they move through it. So I mean, you talk about working with patients for a short period of time, putting them through this fire, and then getting them out the other end. As they return to a sick society, mm. how? have you found that people have reintegrated best? Um, I don't know if you've, if you guys have ever read the book, uh, tribe by Sebastian younger, it's really good, but he, he makes the argument that a lot of post-traumatic stress, uh, disorders from soldiers doesn't actually come from the single time event, but the lack of reintegration that we have into community that people, the, these soldiers feel isolated as a result. Um, how does the reintegration process pertain to both of your work and I, and I want to give you a chance to talk uh, as well yeah um, I it, it's been very humbling for me to recognize that the model of dyadic medical care or healing whatever you want to call it, what I do in private practice is really suboptimal and one of the reasons that it is is because it doesn't provide uh, this community holding. Um, when I translated my protocol into an online program, same exact thing that I do with people one-on-one, the outcomes and the rapidity of, uh, progress online were, you know, was a fraction of the time and publish publishable history making outcomes, um, relative to my practice. And I'm not involved directly with any single one of those cases. I never meet these people. I don't screen them. Um, and so I was forced to recognize the power of, of the community holding in, you know, this is why, well, at least a part of why AA works and, and, um, it really helped me to appreciate, I don't know if you've heard of the rat park studies. Oh yeah. Yeah. Bruce, uh, something or other. Alexander. Bruce Alexander. Yes. Um, yeah. Which, you know, in a nutshell, yeah, basically, uh, helps to decenter the chemical model of dependency as an addiction pathology, um, which is what we learn in training as psychiatrists. You know, this is probably genetic and it's something that's inbuilt in you uh, and manifests at a certain time. And the only way out of it is abstinence um, or avoidance. And basically they would, you know, what they did in a series of experiments um, was to addict these rodents in isolation to cocaine or heroin and what they found was that when they took them out of isolation, put them in what they called a rat park, which is basically like a rat 
you know, heaven with other rats and toys and, you know, different, um, rat go-go dancers. Yeah. You know, the movie theaters, (laughs) merry-go-round. Exactly. Exactly. Rollerblades. No, that they were able to, um, that, that not only did they voluntarily detox, these rodents that they didn't touch the available substance in the in this different setting and so obviously that that speaks to the fact that the the context the environment but specifically the socialization element of that level of connectivity um that its absence is the driver of self-palliative measures like you know um drug use and and subsequent abuse so you know in fact um I, I'm transitioning my practice into a group-based model for this reason, because what happens after these women go through this dark night, they wake up almost like with smelling salts, you know, under their nose. They look around at the life they've created while they were in this, you know, sort of haze, and they don't want any part of it. Their partner you know, their job choice, their, the place they live in the world. Um, and it's extremely isolating and disorienting, you know, probably not unlike the way when you come home from war with, you know, the trauma under your belt, and then you have to somehow find your bearings. It's, um, it just is more challenging than it it needs to be if it could be done in, in a group setting. Yeah. I have a good title for, uh, your group based therapy. I'm ready. Potlucks can save the world. <laughs> That's good. What's behind potlucks? I believe it. Yeah, go, go get a Traeger smoker, that invite some so friends true. over. That's what will it's bring so down simple. big pharma. It's so simple. It's, yeah. it's really true. I mean, even like you think of Charles Eisenstein's work with the potlatch, you know, the, the, the wealth is exhibited by your ability to give to others, you know, in the gift economy. And it's just a whole new way of looking at that. Yeah. Yeah. If you can't make yourself feel good, make someone else feel good, mm-hmm. which makes you feel really good. I mean, I'm half Asian. And for me, if we go out to dinner, like I don't feel good if I'm not buying dinner, you know, I want <laughs> it to me. It feels like a dishonor. Is that an Asian thing? I, didn't, I, didn't know <laughs> I, I think it is. Like, I mean, I hope so. I'd like to take some credit for it in my jeans, but uh, yeah. <laughs> So. All right. Let me get some more meals paid for. It's on me. Yeah. No. <laughs> Hanging out with a bunch of cheapskate surfers. <laughs> I know. Right? <laughs> Venmo. Uh, that was the end of all peasantry. Uh, uh, like, it's all good. You don't have your wallet. Cool. Venmo. Uh, That's fine. <laughs> yeah. No. And there's also, there's something to the, the amount of people. I mean, I'm saying this is kind of half jokingly, but like, a six person potluck where everyone can be in the same room and be around speaking as a man, like I have a couple really good friends. So I feel like I can talk Mm -hmm. about anything with like Mm -hmm. they provide a space where I can share things that aren't going so great in my life, Mm -hmm. which is huge. You know, Mm -hmm. you don't need to put on this face where, Hey, I'm killing it. You should check out everything I'm doing. Right. Which, uh, can feel so isolating even if you are around those people. Mm. But I think mm-hmm. that there's something to the five or six person mm. group where, because this is what happens if you have more than five or six people, they fracture off into separate mm. groups at the party. So there's a magic number mm. where everyone can feel heard. And the therapy aspects of that are, mm. are so real and, and yeah. Anyway. I don't know if you've heard of Lynn McTaggart's work, yeah. but she wrote power of eight. And so from her research, it's actually eight people in a, in a more like healing based, almost clinical setting that, um, Mm -hmm. amplifies the outcomes, 
you know, but I find in, in real life settings, it's like, you need one, you need one person you can be totally real with. Uh, and, and unfortunately I find a lot of the people that I, I work with patients I work with don't even have that one person. So it's, uh, it's like becomes this echo chamber of confusion. I mean, if anything in your work, you've seen the divorce rates of your, you know, female patients like sky high. So the opposite would be true if you're with someone or some ones where they're reflecting false, you know, images of you for whatever reasons you almost have to cut ties with those individuals to heal. Yeah, it's because, again, we don't have any context for moving through, you know, struggle uh, as, as being a meaningful portal to selfhood. And so when people start to, when the individuals in, in a patient's life, let's say, start to see them, you know, withdraw or crying a lot or feeling generally, you know, sort of disoriented and confused, they get worried, right? So like my least favorite thing to hear from a patient is that their spouse or their mom or their friend is very worried about them because I find it to be such a, an aggressive act of, of projecting the anxiety that that person can't tolerate onto the patient so that now they have not only their own self-doubt, but now the concern of others, which implies that they don't fundamentally have faith that they can handle it. You know, it's like the last thing you want your midwife to say is like, well, I'm really worried about how this birth is going, right? You want to be around people who reflect your highest potential and have total faith in well, where you're going. Well, arguably in the constellation of the situation before they were diagnosed and medicated, they're emotional like hysteria was it was just another form of like hysterectomy like chemical suppression that got them in that situation so i guess part of it is just allowing that to come back out and well you're expecting the lowest um you're expecting your patient or your partner whoever it is to be operating from the lowest common denominator. Mm -hmm. You're kind of like projecting that they don't have it in them to make it to the next level. And I, I find that that's, that's a big issue with relationships too. It's like you come home and you expect that your partner is going to be in a certain state of consciousness and they're not going to, they're, they're not a verb like you. They're not constantly growing. We treat people as nouns, which, um, those expectations can then make, then make them act accordingly. Mm -hmm. Like you ever see a little kid fall down on a bike and if the parents come over and they're like, Oh my God, are you okay? The kid will be like, ah! <laughs> but if you see a little kid, like I saw a kid one time I was driving by slammed head first on his bike. Like, but, you know, got scraped up, but there was no one around to say anything. And I was in the car. Oh and I was my. like, oh, my gosh, should I get up? And he just got up, dusted himself <laughs> off, and got back on the bike. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Yeah. It's part of looking outside ourselves to understand who we are. Right. You know, it's it starts that way. I mean, we have four kids between us and are very interested in how to break these patterns of, you know, parental domination over the child's experience of their own inner life and emotional terrain. You know, it, it comes from things as seemingly innocuous as like, Oh, stop crying. You're fine. 
you know, actually, no, they're not fine. And they need an opportunity to feel what it is to not be fine and for that to be okay with everyone in the room. And I don't know anyone who was raised that way. So we have this opportunity now, you know, especially with, you know, if we have kids or the younger generation to meddle less and reflect to them that they can handle their emotional states, that they're not going to die from, you know, an experience so, how, so how does that play, play out? Like in the experience with one of your kids and how typically uh, parents might handle it and how you will redirect that energy. Oh, so many of these. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, because it's a, pra- it's like my most difficult practice, I would say. Um, yeah. So the other well, night, it's, it's arguably the highest stakes practice that you have. Yeah. It feels mm-hmm. that way. It feels that way. Um, but the other now every parent knows that bedtime is a is a gnarly window in the day, <laughs> yeah. right? And um, and yeah. I I've recently moved from the Northeast to to Miami, so you know we're together in in Florida now, and it's taken a massive you know tectonic plate shifting, you know. Um, sort of reorganization of my reality and my professional life and, you know, all the different threads that needed to be cut and, uh, financial strain and all the rest. And my daughter, my youngest is, uh, we're getting ready for bed and the lights are out and she just starts talking about how, uh, she hates it here in Miami, hates it here, doesn't like her friends, doesn't like school. She starts crying, real tears, crying. And how she wants to go back up north and nobody ever asked her, you know, about whether she wanted to leave and and she liked it better there. And and can we go back up there? And so inside, I'm feeling like you have no idea, like what I've had to do (laughs) to create this reality. Why are you so ungrateful? Like you have an incredible life here and this defensive tirade internally, right? But I read a lot of books about parenting and I know the rules of, of mindful parenting. And so I knew that, that she had this emotion she just needed to feel. It's not about the story. It's not about the content. She just needed to feel this emotion and release it. It was literally all I could do in that moment to just put my hand on her back and say, I know it's so hard basic like caveman language it's like all I could come up with and really all you're supposed to come up with ideally that just say nothing not fix it not argue for no well you do like your school you do have friends and isn't it warm and wonderful here and not to do any of that and to just let her feel and it was you know one of the seminal experiences for me to see that it was probably like 12 15 minutes where she was really crying, repeating herself over and over again. It felt like an eternity. And then she kind of got up, blew her nose, made a joke about how she sounded like an elephant, and got back into bed and went to bed. So we don't witness the arc, you know, not, not in, in, in medicine in general, like of, of the natural history of disease is like, you know, the era is over for anthropological study of that. We don't ever witness the arc of anything because we're so insistent on you know, fixing it because of how, how little tolerance, how little practice we have at encountering adversity or, or challenges within ourselves, getting to know what it is to sit with fear, sit with anger, sit with pain, sit with grief. We have, we have no touchstone for that any longer. So it really comes up in parenting. God damn, Kelly Rogan, you're on fire. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I, I had an experience that I was just thinking about, um, 
that sort of relates to that. I snapped my arm a couple months ago, hmm. uh, kite surfing, broke my radius and my ulna. Just, you can see a big scar right there. Wow. And uh, I had been doing these meditation practices for two months prior with this app called Waking Up um, by a guy named Sam Harris. And he has this one meditation on pain mm. and how unbearable pain is actually an erroneous concept because by being in this moment, you are bearing it. It's the fear of it persisting, it persisting mm-hmm. and it not ending, yeah, right? Yeah. But if you can, ra- rather than avoiding that pain, bore into the raw sensation, um, pain can also be, it, pain and just intensity can sometimes be swapped out. And I was on my way to the hospital and I did that. And I would say that the, you know, quote unquote, unbearability of it went down by half and it's you know similarly just by being in that moment and experiencing it fully um it makes almost any situation bearable similarly if you're underwater you know 20 feet on a big wave it's it's the fear of not being able to breathe in the future that makes it so frightening but just being underwater is something that you know most of us have been able to do so psychologically getting yourself into that space can be so empowering well, one of the characteristic paradoxes of synthetic opioids is they cause hyperalgesia, so they increase the pain intensity, which is why you need more and it has less of an effect. So, arguably, this is the way we're meant to deal with pain anyway. So after the after the fact, you mean even after the opioid exactly wears after off. you take the first dose, the pain's still there. You take more, and it just actually the pain increases. That's very typical. So I mean, that's one reason why it creates addiction to the point where you're killing yourself by taking it. But um, so your experience is uh, reminiscent for me of this um, deep release of, of pain trauma is that there's such a, a power in it too. And actually when you get through the other side, there's there's something that I would almost call bliss once it's been fully felt and released. Yeah. yeah. Someone makes a mean comment about you on Facebook. You're like, can't touch me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I almost just drowned, motherfucker. Uh, <laughs> exactly. So yeah. uh, why does that happen? Uh, the hyperalgesia? Uh, oh, hi- it's probably... Hyper, what is it again? Hyperalgesia. Okay. Uh, like, right, is that how you pronounce mm-hmm. it? Right. Oh. It's probably like any attempt to chemically suppress anything in the body. It just creates a... You know, sort of like the opposite effect. Receptor yeah, insensitivity. It's absurd to think that a synthetic chemical is what you would apply. You know, in a situation that isn't caused by a lack of the chemical. It's the basis of the allopathic illusion. Do you think that most substances have that um, that I, I suppose rebound, rebound mm-hmm. effect? I mean, would you oh, even yeah. classify like psychedelics in that category as having a kind of rebound effect? Or would you mm-hmm. say that mm-hmm. the shift might be that, oh. that psychedelics aren't necessarily inherently pleasurable or numbing and there may be more of a facilitator to help you move through a no, difficult experience? I don't know if you would agree, but I, I would say that it's the nature of use, using synthetic chemicals that you induce receptor based changes and you know i could speak specifically to psychotropics that they're um like with antidepressants for example you know there is a phenomenon um called antidepressant tachyphylaxis um and an associated phenomenon called tardive dysphoria these are clinical terms for literally the long-term chronic depression that is induced 
by the antidepressant. And when I learned about that, I, you know, we started to look at so many other medications from antacids, yeah, you know, to, so. to, to over the counter pain meds, um, even to antibiotics where the, the, the very thing that the medication is designed to resolve mm -hmm. is in fact perpetuated and yeah. potentially exacerbated by the medication. Well, chemotherapy is the archetypal yes. example. It's not unlike antibiotic-resistant infection. So, you know, someone throws the word MRSA around, and it's methicillin-resistant staph, which is penicillin-class resistance. And what that means is that using these chemicals, you're basically driving um, a subpopulation of those bacteria into highly virulent, highly, you know, drug refractory state so you te technically like sort of weaponize the very infection you're trying to quote suppress with chemo you're doing that by enriching the cancer stem cells so one in a thousand cells within a tumor are these mother cells that actually are responsible for producing new tumors and being you know, resistant to chemo radiation, but chemo and radiation actually enri enriches or increases those those populations of malignant cells at the very moment that you're debulking or, or reducing the tumor. So it doesn't seem to matter what category you're looking at, psychiatric, antibiotic, you know, gastric ulcer, and it's it's almost the same thing. It's like this absurd acceleration of or furthering of the very condition right okay. social media you're more connected than ever but you never you feel <laughs> totally. more isolated than ever as well it's just mm. there's no free lunch it's the way in which we are gently or not so gently brought back to the reality that you have to address the root cause and recognize that you planted the tree <laughs> you're mm. you're the creator of the yeah. the situation so yeah. what is what is the difference between a, a, a synthetic and psychedelic like how would you i don't necessarily need the difference in, in how you define the two but why doesn't something like a psychedelic have that same rebound effect or you could ask the same about an herb right right or a supplement well i mean i think that that's the perfect category to talk about as an exception to the rule because like for me the etymology of it is so helpful in understanding what psychedelics are because it's like to show the soul literally and that's a that's a term that has been exercised since Descartes, you know, split the mind and body asunder and didn't even <laughs> reference the existence of the soul, you know. So the psychedelic realm and category um, doesn't seem to it, it, it's almost like a, a trans physical layer where it's it's operating. Um, and of course, there's a vast array of compounds, some isolated like LSD 25 would be the 25th derivative from that ergot fungus so by isolating it arguably you're putting into a quasi synthetic state so versus a whole plant right like psilocybin or as a mushroom or ayahuasca so the the more isolated the compound is from the informational context of the whole plant the more likely it's going to take you to sort of extraterrestrial places well i mean that's a relative term but um I don't know. Uh, do you have an opinion on it? Because I know that Kelly recently collated the research on psychedelics uh, as far as their application to, was it? Well, just your question just makes me think about how the pharmaceutical industry is like salivating uh, over, um, you know, sort of the control and, and introduction of uh psychedelic compounds and potentially, you know, what they might do is work with quasi-synthetic 
derivatives of psilocybin, for example. And, um, you know, because there is a lot of, there's a burgeoning body of literature to support, um, particularly, you know, psilocybin, mushrooms, and ayahuasca, I think mostly. Um, some people M- include MDMA, MDMA well. in this yeah. category um, to, to treat even resistant you know, depression. And so I always raise an eyebrow when um, this kind of research is being conducted uh, in academic settings. Curious. Do you feel like, um, you know, the research that's coming out about microdosing uh, affecting anxiety and depression is spoken about within the same paradigm that that conventional antidepressants are, where it's like, take this thing, it will make you feel better? Do you have a problem with the, the language of the paradigm mm, around I it? I love that question uh, because so many people ask me about cannabis and, you know, while Sayers indexed a lot of the literature in support of cannabis as a highly legitimate and evidence-based medical intervention for a number of different presenting symptoms and um, diagnoses, I've always thought to sort of hold this barrier, you know, uh, for people, at least in my realm, so that we're not just reaching for a greener fix, right? Because that's where I started after I began to learn more about pharmaceuticals. I said, okay, well, maybe we can use a little fish oil or a little rhodiola or SAMe with your Prozac. Isn't that the best of both worlds? And I soon came to understand that this is about victim mindset or an empowered emancipated mindset and the latter is is predicated on a fundamental trust of your body as being a wise intimate of expression and so i i am you know like my protocol and approach is is one month of lifestyle choices like there's you know food and and detox and contemplative practice and some mindful consumerism basically but there's no supplements, there's no herbs, there's no cannabis, there's no ayahuasca, there's no uh, microdosing because we, I think we would both agree that, you know, that even a, a vitamin, right, even a supplement can still hold that power over you and reify and reinforce this, you know, this notion that there's something insufficient about you. There's something wrong with you that needs fixing and support and you, you're giving it that power over you. So I'm a big advocate of really clearing the slate so that you can get to know yourself at a true baseline. Well, I think that was always the miracle of what LSD represented, right? It was like a hundred micrograms of something which can help unlock like a life-changing experience of contact with the soul or what's beyond that even. So you could never really, you know, it, it, it's bringing forth something innate. That's the way I would look at it. But looking at it as a naturopathic alternative to an allopathic intervention wouldn't really make sense. Hmm. But there's definitely a place for it. Like when it comes to post-traumatic stress disorder and MDMA, for example. I mean, God, if you're going to use anything for that, that would probably be much more compassionate, ethical than whatever else they're using these days. So... Right. One thing that I do like about the conversation around psychedelics right now is the emphasis that is put on your mindset and your setting Mm. that you take these substances within, which 
is there's so little emphasis put on in the antidepressant, antipsychotic realms. Just like, just take this, but we're not going to talk about any of the context. At least now, you know, when these studies are happening around uh, at John Hopkins around um, smokers trying to to um, quit using psilocybin, they're put in. Uh, a setting where they're, they're they need to talk about their intention beforehand. They're in a comfortable space. It's their own little kind of rat park, um, and I do think that just that is a very important concept to emphasize. If you know one day uh, a pharmaceutical pharmaceutical company like Purdue starts prescribing psilocybin, at least on the bottle to be, you know, saying like, you know, take this around, you know, blooming wildflowers and your best friend. In a comfy chair. Yeah. But it's really also the presence, right? Because to my knowledge, almost all of these studies, if not all of them have a, there's a sitter. So there's a person who is a therapist who is tasked with remaining present to the subject the entire trip. And to me, that's like the elder consciousness I was referring to earlier. It's arguably all I really do for patients as well during this this transformational process. The power of someone who is calm, non-reactive, and assuring you that there is a light at the end of your tunnel is is sort of baked in to our tribal, uh, you know, experience. And because otherwise I, you know, I've recently written a blog about this, like what's the one big lie we tell ourselves. It's that it's like you said, and it's not going to end. And anyone who's experienced, you know, sort of the, the bad trip realms or even the potential trauma that could come from the misuse of this technology and these ancient technologies, um, gets into that place where they cannot orient uh, around, you know, when it's going to end. I remember when I was delivering my second baby, I had a home birth midwife and, and I remember looking at her and just asking her in the moment of transition, which if anyone knows anything about childbirth is like, it's the life or death moment. It's the moment that, (laughs) you know, the baby is about to crown, about to emerge and it's too late for an epidural, but it's, um, arguably the most terrifying and like, did I just shit myself yeah what's God, what is Jesus, going on I, I need some I'm opting out it's like right. you know when you're raising the flag and I remember right. looking at her and just saying please tell me how much longer and she yeah. couldn't even answer the question because right. it was you know over in that moment but I just needed to know there was a cap on it you know right. I needed to know because then you can you can you know recruit your resources yeah well, there's also this interesting historical context for the development of antidepressants in the SSRI category, which is that um, Prozac was developed by Eli Lilly in partnership with the CIA and their MK Ultra program. So they were experimenting unethically without informed consent on American citizens um, using you know, psychedelics like LSD as mind control agents. And in that research, they ended up striking upon the whole serotonin hypothesis because LSD is a serotonin modulator, right? So there's already a dark side to the history here. So getting pharma involved now at this stage, let's hope it takes a different course. But I think your, um, you know, concerns are valid that this may not necessarily turn out so great after all, because why are they interested in this? I mean, 
you know, you can rape or kill someone and end up with a lighter sentence than possessing psychedelics in certain states in this country, as Terrence McKenna said, because the anarchistic implications to the power structure are so profound, you know, and yet we're seeing legalization occur with cannabis in some states with the psilocybin legislation. So it's really a polarizing time when you really think about it. so, so I, I didn't know that story about MK yeah. Ultra. So Prozac was used on soldiers simultaneously that when they were given LSD. Or Prozac was developed within the context okay. of a partnership between Eli Lilly and the CIA. At the time, I believe it was George Bush Sr. who was the head of the CIA. So that research came about, that spawned the SSRI revolution uh, through you know, basically unethical research with... LSD and they were doing other really twisted things. Uh, yeah, I saw Men Who Stare at Goats. You guys ever see that yeah. movie? <laughs> it's a great, yeah. it's a comedy movie. But it, it's at the beginning. It says um, more, more of these events are true than you might think. It's uh, not yeah. like these events are based on a true story. But then they have the, it's this whole great bit about uh, it's like George Clooney at teaching these younger soldiers to do mind control. Totally. Yeah. Tested on goats. And he's like, I was staring at this goat and it just fell to the ground and it died. (laughs) I knew I had the power. That's good. It's a very light. Yeah. The truth is way stranger than fiction. Yeah. 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 Ultimately. Yeah. Michael Pollan talks about this too in his book, um, how to change your mind. Hmm. Talks about what, what Sayers Uh, referencing and the whole history, you know, I, I, I find him to be such a delightful ambassador, you know, of this um, realm because of his intellectual curiosity and really as somebody who's just interested in getting to the the bottom of what these um, technologies have to offer. But he he refers to their history. Right. He's also Mr. Impeccable. Right. Which yeah. is so great to have someone in this realm. He's yeah. not some dirty hippie from Santa Cruz no, talking about the power the of psychedelics. Yeah. It's, it's really amazing. The the command that he controls over the English language and the way Absolutely. that he can describe these normally ineffable concepts is really powerful. Getting yes. back to, you know, and what we were talking about, yes. how how much language can shape our reality. Absolutely. I've heard a few interviews with him where I'm like, that's what I was trying to say. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. Just needed a minute. Yeah. <laughs> well, a lot of it's hidden in plain site you know as far as fluoroxetine is the chemical term for prozac and it's fluoride based we have fluoride in our drinking water has absolutely no you know benefit for dental issues other than topically perhaps and um why is it there you know is it for the purposes of you know suppressing you know the soul um there's evidence that there's pineal gland calcification with more fluoride exposure so you know this is often like written off as conspiracy theory but it's just so blatantly obvious that's a violation of informed consent you don't put a medical product into drinking water and uh you know it's all connected so do you think that that is the result of some malevolent scheme or do you mm-hmm. think that that's the result of um mm-hmm. this being a chemical that that companies wanted to get rid of and this was the easiest way to do it yeah, I mean, it's what, uh, hydrofluorosilic acid, which has radioisotopes in it. So they're not even using, like, sodium fluoride, which arguably would be cleaner. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely the element of turning a very toxic uh, waste product through aluminum industries and um, uh, mining of uh, phosphate. Uh, that's where it comes from, into the drinking water, and then obviously they're monetizing that. 
And yeah, I mean, there was certainly um, some indication that in the Gulag archipelago in, in Russia, they were using it as a way to suppress, you know, the, the prisoners. So there's definitely some connection there. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah I don't know much about that. Um, how much do you guys think this whole big problem has to do with um, the corporate model of externalities? That like we're not talking about necessarily bad people. We're talking about bad incentives. And a company like Purdue Pharmaceutical, which I talk about ad nauseum on this podcast, <laughs> mm-hmm. are not necessarily not necessarily evil, but they want to make as much profit as possible. And the externality of coroner's offices being filled with dead addicts and firefighters needing to go on these calls is something that they don't want to account for because. You know, imagine if there was a tax put on them needing to take account for all of the people that get addicted to oxy. Like, I know there's a big question, but and you talk about the revolving door, Kelly, between um, FDA officials and and pharmaceutical um, employees, and, and it just seems like we're caught in this big system where people want to make as much money as possible and externalize everything else, including their bodies, the environment, and anything mm-hmm. else in a more holistic system. Um, like, How much do you guys think that this is just the base problem, that if we shifted the incentives within this, everything else would, would follow? I mean, we're, so I'm, I'm just trying to get to what yeah. the root is. Well, on, assist, just, on a systems level. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the industries whose products have been indemnified against liability, that is the great way to start the conversation because you look at vaccines and you look at like nuclear power. And there's a reason for that because the um, harms that have been caused by, for example, just the CDC's vaccine schedule amount just in financial terms to $4 billion paid out by the National um, Vaccine Injury Compensation Fund, which was enacted by Congress. It went live in 1988. That's for children that were either killed or forever damaged from vaccines. And so we know that that industry has no incentive to better their product or make it safer because the, the, the liability was literally stripped from the product. So that's, that's absurd and obscene, like for anyone to look at that and then have their children vaccinated without, you know, any awareness of what's actually in the products. It's, it's really crazy, you know, because the checks and balances aren't, aren't there. Um, and I think obviously that's one of the more extreme examples in terms of products that are not only recommended, but in some cases mandated without Mm -hmm. these uh, regulatory controls in place. But it's true with the EPA, the CDC, the FDA, any of these, you know, foxes guarding the hen house. It's not just the medical industry. It's it's across the board that revolving door exists. And we have colleagues who are, you know, they have these massive flow charts, you know, revealing all of the interconnectedness of these seemingly very discrete and disparate uh, entities. But I also like to think that we're at a point where if we don't understand that we are fundamentally in control and that it's our choice, why would we ever be um, disabused of the idea that any of these companies are here to take care of us? That's what I always say about the pharmaceutical industry. And what I came to recognize is like, 
they were never said they were here to take care of us. They never said they were here to, you know, as custodians to, to usher us into states of wellness. They're offering a product. You buy it or you don't buy it. That's your choice as a consumer. Inform yourself. Don't take their word for it. And unfortunately, it's become confusing because, you know, we're not only taking their word for it directly from direct-to-consumer advertising, but then we're taking their word for it I guess you can't see my air quotes. Mm. <laughs> You're taking their word mm. for it, you know, through our trusted clinicians, right? Through our medical schools, through our training programs, and through our government, who then goes on to support and enforce, uh, you know, the interests of these industries. So if you don't know that those connections exist, then you might think, oh, well, I'm not going to listen to ads, fine. And then you go to your doctor and you imagine that they are some dispassionate, you know, nonpartisan participant in the system. and until and if you understand how insidious all of those, um, you know, roots are growing. All those incentives are, I suppose. It's not even just incentives because, you know, again, as somebody who trained in the system, I, I don't believe that most doctors are in it for the money. It, it's like we're so <laughs> beaten down that all we're trying to do is just regurgitate the thing we think is right. You know, it's like, I don't know. I'm sure there are some doctors who are, but it's more just being really brainwashed um, by a system that runs on those incentives and not knowing that that's what's happening, right? So like not being aware that we're participating. So that's how, you know, the research scientist at, Merck is not fundamentally, you know, here to injure innocent children, but they're participating, as you said, in a machinery that is interested in, in gaming, right? That's interested in, in profit. And if we can see that, then it's like neutralized, you know, then we don't get upset about it. We can just make different choices. Well, and the corporate structure requires through the fiduciary responsibility that these corporations make money for their shareholders. So it's a system is set up where they would be breaking the law, perhaps if they didn't maintain these systems, which result in extreme suffering and cover-ups. So what role do you think regulatory agencies have in you know if there is a antipsychotic that has these these massive um side effects do you think that any of these substances should be made illegal or do you think it's just about informed consent and that it should all be on the table but you should at least know what you're getting into i guess i don't have that much faith in the ability it's like it's like the titanic you know changing course Mm. um you know in the case of of vaccination obviously eliminating the indemnification and allowing for proper uh litigation and compensation would probably shut down the program overnight that's a unique situation whereas you know the way that we are researching safety you know most most drug trials are like eight weeks to 12 weeks the women I'm working with have been on these meds for 30 years. Okay. So is it a realistic expectation that from research and development, they're going to wait 30 years to recoup um, on their investment? I think that's why informed consent is a far more powerful means of uh, enabling people to make choices that are in their best interest. Which is why when they're mandating vaccines, as they're doing presently throughout many different states in this country are attempting to through legislation you know it's just such an obvious indication that we're so far from that at this point Hmm. unless we you know become educated and stand up for our rights um, then we're not going to have any i mean ultimately to be forced to be penetrated by a medical product 
is is it said i mean it's it says it's it stands on its own for what it represents you know that why do you think the anti-vax conversation has kind of hit this threshold it seems even in the past year where all of a sudden it's it's made its way into mainstream news in such a, a more profound way well it's the term itself um you know anti-vax is like such a bigot bigotry based meme you know it's not doesn't indicate any information other than a slur. I mean, it's as bad as a racial slur at this point. It just means a vaccine safety advocate. That is all those yeah. terms mean. Anti-vaxxer Nazi. Exactly. Right here, right here. And that's truly, that's all it is. You are not allowed to reference peer-reviewed published research indicating that the safety at best, you know, is equivocal on these vaccines. But none of them have gone through a true placebo-controlled trial. They never use saline. And nor have they ever combined any of the vaccines in the schedule. 60 plus vaccines for a child age six. They've never done any research to, to validate that that's safe or effective. That is all these people that they're calling anti-vax are saying is, hey, look at the obvious. You've paid out $4 billion in damages to people that have already been either killed or, or you know, hurt. And then the Supreme Court ruled that vaccines are a pharmaceutical product that is unavoidably unsafe. So the, the very the very highest level validation for their lack of safety is there, and you can't even ask the question anymore. And that that is, is a pretty big problem. So people who use the term anti-vax, it's already a litmus test for just complete ignorance on the topic. A truther. truther. Yeah. Well, it's also the timing, I think, is also related to, it started in uh, around 2014, um, the rollout of 110 bills across the nation to begin to enforce compliance uh, has something to do, at least according to some of our colleagues, with um, an agenda called Healthy People 2020. And this is all talk about in plain sight. I mean, you Google it, find out what that, you know, entails. But essentially, it's just you know, conforming to the business plan. And the business plan involves um, as close to 100% compliance with this program as possible. Now, the reasons for that, we could debate all day long, the incentives, the intentions um, from malevolent to benevolent, but that is the plan. And so as that's rolling out, uh, there are people who believe in civil liberties and in patient autonomy um, and informed consent who are starting to question, you know, whether this is American ethical post Nuremberg, whether this is something that we shouldn't um, put a stop to. And so as that energy rises, of course, it's it has to be controlled. And we come back to your first question around language, you know, the power of um slander and slur and you know you look at the ways in which uh you know some of these activists are, are parents who very much believed in the program so much so that they took their pediatrician's word for the safety of of this product and their children were injured these are are not you know um <laughs> rabble rousing right. you know ignorant um troublemakers so They're not like young kyle basing his whole identity <laughs> off of activism <laughs> i'm on the front lines this makes me important yeah exactly Woo! let's yeah. take a selfie exactly. i mean something well we had children exactly. so that's what really opened our eyes and we were fortunate enough to not have to experience firsthand having a child die or be in diapers and a helmet for the rest of their life and there are just so many people we know who are in that position and their lives are living hell 
Not to say that on some meta level, they didn't choose that. And it was some soul contract between their injured child and them. And I wouldn't argue that that's not true for them. But we're, we're seeing this happen in such a way that there isn't going to be a choice any longer. At which point, um, you know, your body, you don't possess it. That's the implication. It's redefined as chattel. Your children, your body's possession of the state. And that's the signal. So no matter what you believe, it's it's basically the implication. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I am not an expert on vaccines, so yeah. <laughs> no territory to to debate on this one. Um, however, I, I do think it's really interesting when you look at certain issues that have, you know, you, you say the wrong word and all of a sudden you've stepped on a landmine. Exactly. Like, whoa, yeah. like yeah. my friend um, Ben Greenfield, who I recently yeah. went on a, a hunting trip with, um, has criticized vaccines. And then he did a post where he said, you know, every day I get... Uh, I get messages from pro-vaxxers saying that they hope I die, that they mm. hope my kids yeah, die. And he's like, which is a very ironic thing right. to right. be hoping. Like, <laughs> right, right. But, like, but there are these subjects and, and mm-hmm. you know, podcasting is so beautiful because we can kind of flail our way into mm-hmm. it and yeah. just talk about it um, in a way that I think is really important so that we don't just get on opposite sides of the fence and throw grenades at each other as we as i said earlier just coming at it with the intention that we want to help i think is a really important way to approach these conversations well i think kelly and i would both be a hundred percent behind like the choice if you right. want to vaccinate go ahead but it's our choice not to that that's right. just about choice and freedom so that's the difference is mm. that we're being told that we shouldn't have a choice and we're not arguing that point we're not forcing someone against their will to do something they don't want to do it's a complex topic we can get into herd immunity and all this science or pseudoscience around that concept but either way you know this is a pro-freedom we're pro-freedom pro-immunity pro-science you know and that's where we're at the anti-vaxxer meme is really it's 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 like a racial slur at this point it's like let's go hang that person like literally because they're an anti-vaxxer oh yeah i i mean i've grew up in this world of of taboo subjects and i've seen it and i've felt very fearful to talk about a lot of them for fear of being discredited myself and also um just there's only so much we can do and i feel like i can make a much bigger splash on topics that i really do know about um and can talk about so and there's only so much you can bite off and i really don't like like to fetish like get in those worlds of conspiracy uh where there seems to be no out i'm not saying that's what you guys are doing but it's 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 more rather than getting into the science of of vaccines it's more interesting for me to look at certain issues that you're not allowed to talk about there are a lot of issues like that all the ones we're interested yeah. in right basically but yeah it's it's you know who talks a lot about this rupert sheldrake um he uh basically gives us this the signpost for dogma hmm. is often the phrase the science is settled right so whenever you are trafficking in the realm of religion which is essentially his his argument but you think that you're in the realm of objective science you'll be awakened to you know to to the fact that you're having a religious war you're dealing with crusade level um energies when you hear that phrase you know the science is settled and there's no room for inquiry there's no room for discussion that's a fundamentally non-scientific orientation towards discovery of the truth because the science is 
never yeah. settled. It's monotheism, basically. Yeah. yeah, that's where scientism leads. So, you guys must have such interesting dinner time conversations. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> we don't talk about this stuff, so yeah. it's uh, interesting to g- go open it up together because actually just, you know, staring into this beautiful woman's face is all I can handle and I just melt to the floor and I don't even know what to say. So, I'm great greatly blessed with this woman and not having to have these conversations anymore. <laughs> wow. Um, it's cool that you guys edit each other's books too. Do you know, um, have you guys ever read, uh, the year of magical thinking by, um, Oh gosh, what's her name? Didn't I'm going to Didion, Joan Didion. I read a long time so ago. So Didion and her husband yes. were both writers yes. and they would edit each other's yes. work. And then they were going through a divorce and they were both writing books <laughs> oh, really? and they were both editing each other's work. Oh. And, and an interviewer asked them, how did that affect your time? They said, we're both professional writers. It didn't oh affect God. us at all. <laughs> yes. It would just give it straight up to each other. I'm like, Woo, that takes some, it's hardcore. some distance. Like, <laughs> well, we, we both. You, you punctuated <laughs> this wrong and you're an asshole. <laughs> Saying goodbye. We both yeah. ended up ended up writing books in the same window too, and our yeah our relationship really went through some some challenges. So yeah, it's it's definitely real. The struggle's real. Right. <laughs> um, thank you guys both so much. We've been doing this for an hour and a half. It's been a long cool. day for you. Um, and where can people find both of your work? I'm at greenmidinfo.com. Kelly's at Instagram. <laughs> you can watch her dance there. She's yeah, amazing. Um, in my real life, um, just Kelly Brogan, MD.com. Final question. Um, I have had a lot of friends who have dealt with depression. Um, and it's very difficult many times to start that conversation. Mm. Um, either if, if you know that there's something that they're going through, but no one is helping them or, you know, if they don't necessarily know how to reach out, um, what is the most effective tactic you found to start that conversation with someone who is struggling? It's essentially to do what you can to provide them with information they might not otherwise come into contact with, uh, which is obviously why I wrote the book because it's not for everyone. And, and to feel like it's your job to influence, impact, or even inspire their process could be a mistake. Take it from me. You know, because once I learned everything we've talked about today, I felt like, oh, everyone needs to know this and there's only one right way to do it. And, um, and I was quickly disabused, you know, because everyone has to engage their process at their level of consciousness and it's their choice fundamentally. So, you know, to, to learn that there's a bit more to the story and there might be a better way to learn that there are people who have recovered medication free, um, from struggles ranging from psychosis to inattention, to panic attacks, to suicidal depression, to learn that even if you've chosen medication, there can be a second chapter for you beyond diagnosis, beyond, um, prescriptions. To me, it's important that people know that that's possible. If they don't know it's possible, they can't ever orient towards it. But if they do, then they can decide, well, that path is not for me. Seems a bit arduous, right? And it is, it is, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a path you have to be ready to walk. Yeah. Yeah. Providing the information and then stepping away can be very difficult. 
Yeah, I found that, that I've been able to help one friend through through depression. I did turn him on to your work, but it was I found it very difficult not to become more invested. Yeah, well, that's your stuff. Right. <laughs> Damn it. You just turned it around on me. Oh, yeah. man. So you can get more I hate I hate talking with psychiatrists. It's like jiu No, but it's true. For you to be comfortable with his struggle is the same thing as you being comfortable with your own struggle it's the the mirror neuron effect right it's really hard super hard it's the same thing i was saying about my daughter you know for me to just bear witness to her tears it was nearly impossible yeah watch yeah. that kid slam on the bike just right. keep driving you got this bro <laughs> exactly. all right thank you guys so much thank you thank Thanks, you Kyle. appreciate it, it. That's our show. I'm going to play out the song called Citadel by Oppo. These guys listened to the band and they sent me some music. If you are a musician and you want your tunes played at the end of this podcast, you can email it to info at kyle.surf. Kyle.surf is also where you can get on my mailing list. Just once a month, I send you the best videos I've been watching, best books I've been reading, podcasts I've been listening to, to your cyber doorstep known as your inbox. Thanks again to Mudwater. Thanks again to Santa Cruz Medicinals. You guys are so great, and I feel uh, really stoked to be able to promote your products each and every podcast. And with that, get out in the water. I did yesterday. I uh, I took an ocean swim, springtime, Santa Cruz, freezing cold water, and swam all the way out to the surfers. Halfway out, I thought I might drown. It was so cold. It literally took my breath away. But I came in, and then that night... I was thinking about my day, and uh, doing that cold swim was the best part of it. So if you have access to cold water, jump in. It will make your day better. And with that, I bring you a song called Citadel by Oppo. You can check out more of their music in the show notes below this podcast.
Separation Return Separation Separation Return Separation 